Hello and welcome to the Curator of Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week here on Monaco 24. This week, we tour London's upcoming Camden Highline. The Mayor of London has an aspiration that everyone should be within 400 metres of green space. Because of the density of those housing estates, 10,000 people qualify for that the minute you open the High Line. Plus, a lovely recipe from São Paulo. I chose a very traditional recipe from northeast of Brazil called Baião de Dois, and I simply love it. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show this week talking about the world of literature. The Women's Prize Trust has just announced it is going to create a new annual book prize, the Women's Prize for Nonfiction. The hope is that with this award, the voices of female authors can be further amplified. For more on this, we were joined by Kate Moss, the Women's Prize for Fiction founder, director, author and playwright. So what we realised was that although there's more and more exceptional non-fiction uh, by women being published in all sorts of areas, you know, climate, faith, history, biography, science, you name it, uh, there's still a problem in terms of women's work being acknowledged and uh, rewarded. So, you know, sadly, only about a third of non-fiction books by women ever make it onto winning a non-fiction prize. I'm afraid it's as low as a quarter of books in non-fiction that are reviewed are by women as opposed to men or edited by men. And the same thing is in terms of um, the best of non-fiction books. Uh, when we did a bit of a straw poll last year, it was only, again, a third of those books were by women. And, you know, the question, of course, is why does this matter? Well, it matters because readers are missing out, uh, because there's exceptional books out there and they don't get to hear about them because prizes put works of quality in the public gaze. And that's what we want to do with the Women's Prize for Nonfiction. And how do you explain those numbers otherwise? Why is it that female authors get so little attention still? Well, you know, I... Uh, it, it's really hard to say. There's never just one thing. But I would say there is still an idea that men writing are writing for everyone and women writing are writing for women. I, the idea of the male expert is quite persistent as opposed to the idea of the expert, whether they might be a man or a woman and whatever they're writing about. So I think that persists. I also think that um, sometimes it's the way that books are marketed and sold. So when we did a, a big campaign last year for fiction called Men Reading Women, um, only 19% of men admit, and they quite often use that word, <laughs> admit to ever reading a book by a woman. And it's more acute when it comes to nonfiction. So all we're saying is there are some incredible books out there and we want to put those in the public gaze because prizes keep work of quality on the shelves. The very well-known sister prize, the Women's Prize for Fiction, has already existed for almost 30 years. What do you think have been the greatest things this award has achieved? Well, do you know, I think it's... You know, I'm, I'm just about to go on tour with a one-woman show based on my book Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries. And I've been doing a huge amount of research, therefore, into women and how women get their voices heard in all sorts of areas. And it's very straightforward that women have always had to battle to be accepted in the spaces as equal with men. And in many cultures, that's been forbidden and illegal. and others, it's just been one of those things that happens, you know, benign neglect, as I often think about it. And so when I've been trying to work out what the prize for fiction has achieved, I, one of the things is this, that it got people talking. 
It got people talking about why women's work, even those 60% of novels published when we were setting up the prize back in uh, the 1990s, were by women. Only 9% of novels ever shortlisted for major literary prizes were by women. So it starts a dialogue because in the end, women and men built the world together. Mm -hmm. So we should all be there. You know, we should all have a seat at the table. And then you can make your decision. You don't have to agree with people, but you read everything and then you listen and then you debate. And so that's what we've done for the prize for fiction. We've all made it a debate about why women's voices weren't being honoured. And now with non-fiction, we realise there is an issue there. And wouldn't it be great if we could do the same for non-fiction? You know, this is the time to be bold. Exactly. Now this new non-fiction prize, let's let's recap a few things about that. So who is it? Is it open to? Does does the author's background or language matter? It's uh, books written in English uh, by a f- single female author. So not a book of essays with many, many authors um, involved in it, for example. It will be what's known as narrative non-fiction. Uh, so that is, um, if you like, a, a book that has a central premise, a central theme. It's a book to be read. It's not an illustrated book with a, a couple of captions around the side. Um, the rules and regs will be exactly the same as the price for fiction. And it will be exactly the same in that it's publishers that will nominate books, not authors. Uh, so where it, it is a sister prize in every single way. There will be five judges. It will be an all-female judging panel. Uh, we will award it uh, at the same time. Uh, it will be, you know, a super big uh, award ceremony now. It's always been quite big, but now it's going to be, you know, twice the size because mm-hmm. we'll have all the non-fiction as well. And we will, you know, we're, we're a charity. We have an enormous charitable purpose. Uh, we do a huge amount of work into mentoring new writers in the fiction area. We do a lot of campaigns. We fund a lot of research. And of course, over time, this is about growing the charit- our charitable purpose. Uh, we have two fabulous sponsors with Baileys and Audible for the fiction side. And so we're now looking for a couple of uh, family of sponsors for the non-fiction side. And there are three things. It's not just about putting women's work out there and giving it the attention it deserves. It's also about readers getting what they deserve. But I think more than that, there are two things for potential sponsors, because we already have the prize money from the Charlotte Aitken Trust, which is fabulous uh, way to get us going, is that firstly, companies and our partners like to have things that they can give to their own members of staff. And that's important. But I would also say in a rather maybe idealistic way still, um, that you can't be what you can't see. And what I also love is the idea of women of all ages, but of course younger women in particular, looking at the prize for non-fiction and thinking, that could be me. I'm a scientist, but if, why can't I put my my thoughts out into the world? I'm interested in climate, why can't I put that? Or I'm interested in faith, consequences of faith, why can't I put that out there? So there is an element, I suppose, with the Women's Prize for Fiction and now the Women's Prize for Non-Fiction, which we hope to award for the first time in 2024, of inspiring the next generation of writers too. And of course, the next generation of writers could be women of my age who just haven't quite got going yet. <laughs> okay, just finally, you've been running the the Women's Prize for Fiction Prize for, for almost 30 years. What's been your favourite moment so far? <laughs> oh, Lord. Well, I mean, when I announced it, the very first time I announced it... Um, Uh, This is a thing that happens to women. I'm quite short. And uh, there was a lectern, and that was clearly designed for a statuesque man, shall we say. So I looked ridiculous. Nobody could see me, just the top of my head. Um, So they got me a box. But unfortunately, the box was um, a bit ropey. And as I stood up for the first time to say, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to, I went through the box. So it started with comedy. Um, It was very aggressive when I was setting it up. There were lots of criticisms, lots of comments about this being sexist. You know, people 
people moan. There's a lot of people who moan, and I live by the suffragette um, uh, sort of slogan, which is deeds, not words. And so it gave me great pleasure that some of the biggest moaners tried to later gatecrush the party when they realised that the Women's Prize was a success. And for our second item, concerns have been growing over Russia's increasing influence in Africa after Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov visit to Mali this week. Speaking in Bamako, Lavrov promised help to West African nations fighting armed groups. Critics, however, say that the operatives in Moscow have so far brought to Africa are often members of the Wagner Group, a private Russian military group that has been deployed in Ukraine and Syria. To tell us more about this, here is Paul Malley, consulting fellow at the Chatham House Africa program. Well, I think Russia's goal has really moved forward. When Russia first started getting heavily involved or heavily re-involved in Africa, remember the Cold in the Cold War uh, decades ago, Russia had many uh, close allies in the African continent, and then over two or three decades, that situation changed radically. But in the last three or four years, Russia is back. But its goal, first of all, was, if you like, almost an irritation one, one to sort of destabilize um, the patterns of support and uh, alliance and partnership that had been built up by the West, particularly by France, the European Union, in uh, Central and West Africa. And we saw that, first of all, in the Central African Republic, whose uh, government is very fragile, faced lots of rebels, and the Russians arranged for the deployment of Wagner, who used pretty ruthless tactics in helping the government extend its area of control. But now in the west of the continent, in the Sahel, we're seeing a slightly more ambitious agenda, where Russia, in a sense, is presenting itself as the partner who can do the military stuff that perhaps the French and the other Europeans are reluctant to do because uh, Wagner operatives notoriously are not constrained by the same sort of human rights uh, uh, concerns and uh, they're willing, therefore, in, in very tense situations where you've got lots of community factors at play, sometimes to play hardball. And uh, we've seen the UN accusing, uh, um, essentially, Wagner of being involved with operations where uh, civilians have been massacred, for example, in Mali. But for the government, with a very sort of tough security agenda, they, they may not be bothered about that. What do you expect will happen next? Do these West African nations have any concerns over accepting assistance from Russia? Well, not the countries who've so far sought support or accepted support, because... In Mali, there was a military coup in 2020, a second coup in 2021, where essentially the leader now in charge, Asimi Goita, has tried to strike out on a much more independent path, not just breaking with France, whose troops have pulled out along with other Europeans, but also distancing himself from the rest of ECOWAS, the sort of West African equivalent of the European Union. And now we've seen a, a similar coup in Burkina Faso. There are rumors that the Burkina government is in discussions with Russia about bringing in Wagner too. And again, Burkina has asked the French to leave just a few days ago. So for Russia, this is opening up. It's moving from the nuisance game, if you like, to a chance to play a more strategic game where it's presenting itself as a partner of influence for those countries that face security crisis 
and are somehow unsatisfied with uh, the support uh, that, if you like, the Western establishment can put in play. And this is also politically difficult because for most West African governments are coping already with a lot of popular grassroots disillusion with elected leaders, with the standard political establishment, the political class. And so ECOWAS, as as that establishment, if you like, when it's trying to put pressure on Mali and Burkina to return to constitutional rule, now it's finding that those countries may get support from Russia and be able to stand up against uh, against the pressure from ECOWAS to some and have a greater control over the pace of whether or not they cooperate with the return of civilian rule. But we've got a final interesting development. Yesterday, um, Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, was in Nouakchott, the capital of Mauritania. Now, that's a country that doesn't fall into this category. Mm-hmm. It's a country with an elected government, much more orthodox. And he was trying to make the case to them that even in a country like that, Russia could be a useful partner. What is Russia's big plan over here? Is it just the principle of trying to gain more influence wherever you can? Or could Russia benefit immediately from from having allies in Western Africa? I don't think the economic benefits are very great because Russian companies are already, for example, involved in gold mining. That was uh, possible even before. After all, West Africa is looking for investors, Russians, along with the Canadians, Australians, etc., etc., are present. But what Russia can get is diplomatic influence. And at the time of the Ukraine crisis, uh, we saw, for example, that African votes in those key UN votes to condemn or not condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the African voice was split. And uh, there are a number of countries that abstained. Only only one country, I think, Eritrea, actually supported Russia, but a lot of countries uh, didn't turn up for the vote or abstained. And uh, we've seen that this is, again, it plays into the fact that there's a lot of popular disillusion, if you like, particularly in the cities in Western Africa, with the traditional partnerships with the West, and particularly a lot of popular anger against France, one of the key partners, and of course, a former colonial power. And so, um, for Russia, this is a chance to build some diplomatic influence, and of course, re-establish itself as a player uh, internationally, so that at a time when which wasn't true, of course, during the Cold War, at a time when China is now the big alternative counterbalancing power to the US and in economic terms, Europe, uh, if you if you like. Russia, Russia doesn't have those same advantages, but here in the African continent, it's able to carve out some diplomatic support. You are listening to the curator of Monaco 24. And now, an interview I did with Argentinian director Santiago Mitre. He directed Argentina 1985, which has been nominated for the BAFTAs and the Oscars this year. Let's hear from Santiago. Estando yo en mi casa, fui 
Santiago Mitre, a pleasure to have you here in Monaco 24. Uh, we're here to talk about your excellent film, Argentina 1985. My first question to you, uh, Santiago, I think you're fairly young. I mean, how was your experience actually with the, with the Argentinian military junta? Is that something that you grew up listening from your parents as an Argentinian, first of all? Yes, I was born in the 80s. So I was born during the dictatorship, but I was uh, very little at that time. And then when the trial happened, I was only four years old. Uh, so, uh, but my fathers, my parents both, and my, yeah, I come from a very politically rooted family. They fought for democracy during the dictatorship. They were militants. They were young militants. That uh, they, they tried to fight for democracy in a peaceful way, let's say. It was a topic that we spoke a lot during my life uh, in, in the family gatherings. And, of course, this unique trial is a, it's a sort of emblem for, our, for the fighting for democracy or for rebuilding a country after the dictatorship. So it was a topic that I had a, an event that I had a lot of admiration Luckily, I could. I was able to to make a film about it. And it's interesting. I mean, of course, I I think actually Argentinian cinema is quite political. But this specific event, there hasn't been many films actually about it, right? So, I mean, what an opportunity, and perhaps to remind people of exactly what happened. Maybe there's a young generation who feel a bit dissociated of the event. Yes, it's it's something that I really don't know why, because uh, it's so obvious that this is an important event that needed to be reflected in a film. I don't know why it took so long. Probably the processes of uh, of healing or approaching to how to revisit the horrors of dictatorship take time. So uh, to start to think on the good uh, things that we as a country did after uh, the dictatorship is something that probably needed some time and well, we, I'm really happy that we were able to do it. And I think that people in Argentina are also happy that uh, that a film about uh, this subject exists. Because sometimes we as Argentinians, we are well, we criticize ourselves a lot and we find so few reasons to, to feel... Uh, proud about uh, being from our country beside football but I think this event it's actually something that happened good uh, in, in, a, in a good moment and it's so uh, an excellent example on, on how to gather society in something that is correct and now uh, now people in, in, in Argentina are having this uh, this message also so which is great because we are living in a, in a time where societies are so uh, divided. We, we feel so much anger everywhere. When we find an event uh, that people, okay, they, say, they, they all agree that it's, this, this is the correct way, I think it's, uh, it's, it's great. And it's uh, something that the film is reminding in a way. The World Cup, the Golden Globes as well, potentially a BAFTA and an Oscar. And I want to mention to people as well, because I was looking at the numbers, the film did so well in Argentina. And again, it's not like a sci-fi blockbuster. It's, you know, it's, it's a drama about something that happened in the country. Were you, how proud were you actually looking at those numbers and incredible box office numbers? Yeah, it was incredible. And it, and it was far beyond our expectations because we did the film in the worst uh, moment of the pandemic mm. so all the cinemas were closed so we were not really hoping to see a packed cinema on the film at that moment but luckily well then the pandemic slowed down and the cinemas were reopened and the people went to went back to the cinema to watch this film about an historical topic about a painful topic which is hard uh, it was hard to imagine for us 
and uh, and and for me it was important to reach to the younger generations in a way. Of course, the films, the film, and, and the, the research helped us because uh, this moment when the um, prosecutor realized that he needs to go to the to young uh, mm. lawyers or not even lawyers to help him to build a trial, it, it's a very strong image, and I think it helped us a lot to connect with the uh, with the with the younger audiences in Argentina, and people went massively to the cinema. We did like a, a million admissions in less than two weeks, no, in less than three weeks, which is a lot for 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 a film like this. Uh, and for an Argentinian film, I think it was something... I mean, this trial was belongs to society. And to share the collective experience of, about this triumph of democracy is something that amplifies the visions of the film and, and people wanted to go and watch it with other people. So it was like a sort of a event that grew a lot uh, in Argentina and, and it was, uh, as I said, far beyond our expectation and we were super proud and super happy and, of, of course, very moved about what was happening. And now we have another iconic film director, Guillermo del Toro. He's known for making movies underpinned by a sense of the mythic and filled with ghosts and monsters. His most recent film, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, is an intricate stop-motion retelling of the familiar story. Monaco's Sophie Monaghan Coombs caught up with him. She asked whether this new film helps him answer some of the questions about humanity and mortality. For me, the summation of my 58 years in this world is what happens, happens, and then we're gone, which is a very simple way of putting... It gives you humility to know that. You know, It gives you a very cosmic humility because we're very brief and very inconsequential. When I talk to friends, they say this or that, and I say, look, we didn't invent the world. We're not going to solve it. We, we can just hold it for a little while and try to make it slightly more uh, sort of comprehensible. So if, when I think about my questions in doing Kronos, the final image of Kronos is a child standing by the bed of the father figure dying while the sun pours through the window, which is exactly the final scene in Pinocchio before the coda at the end. And the matter of Kronos is immortality is not desirable. Mortality is, which is Pinocchio. So I think somebody said, I, I think it was Jean Renoir's father, he said, uh, a painter paints the same tree all his life. And I think that's true. We pursue not many questions but one And I've been thinking about death since I was seven. And I think I've come to a conclusion. It doesn't have to be a conclusion everybody agrees with, but this is, is imbued in Pinocchio. You've been thinking about death since you were seven. Yes. There's, there's so much in this film that kind of relates to your childhood, both you watching Pinocchio and also the animation, which I'll get onto in a moment. In that space of time, between then and now this film coming out, What has your work in cinema and all these other films you've made, how has that shaped you and shaped what this film has become, but really how you think about cinema? The thing is, uh, I believe that we exist in a cultural wave and the wave passes you by and moves to the beach and another wave comes with the next generation. I think I'm nearing the beach. So I understand that some of the culture that will come in the next few years belongs already to the next generation, and I'm very much at peace with that. I have enjoyed being part of the art for a few decades, and I'm grateful for that. 
and I now take it more personally than ever because I have the possibility of having 12 movies that talk to each other as opposed to when you go at it for the first time and people try to define who you are by one, two, or three movies, you know. Now they have a dialogue. Pinocchio talks to Kronos. Pinocchio talks to Devil's Backbone. Pinocchio talks to Hellboy, to Shape of Water. That is, you realize that uh, as you go past your third decade as a filmmaker, you now have created an autobiography of the soul. I am very much my character. I'm the girl in Pan's Labyrinth. I'm Hellboy. I'm Sally Hawkins in Shape of Water. I'm uh, the grandfather in Kronos. I'm all, all of these characters. So, you know, I take it very seriously. I've never approached filmmaking as something to make a living. I have never made a movie just to make it. I always, even the most commercial ones like Blade Two or Hellboy or Pacific Rim, I take them very, very personal. Even in Blade Two, there is a, a very poignant tale about a father and a son in the middle of it, or two fathers and two sons. So, you know, I think we're coming into a moment of serenity. Is that serenity you can see your complete picture when you look at all of these films, that every part of you is there in, in a different way yeah. if you look at them all together? Yeah, I think, look, if, if you see the movies, all of them together, you pretty much are having a dialogue with me. I don't think that we can answer or question everything we question in life through a body of work. But I think that it's something I'm producing new filmmakers, and I like uh, staying sort of interested that way, watching new films, uh, promoting new films, creating things for the next generation to use. So I see my work as expansive as opposed to reducing. I am not in a solipsistic mind. I'm about making it about others and producer and showcasing other people's work. So that's changing too. More and more I do that. And more and more I think that's the key to happiness. The key to happiness is not you, is the others. You know how it was Sartre that says hell is the others? Heaven is the others too. So I think it's, so it's, I'm in that moment. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator. We tour what's set to be the new Camden High Line, transforming a section of disused railway into a new elevated urban park for London, with Simon Pitcatley, the CEO of Camden Town Unlimited, and Tatiana von Prossen, lead architect at VPPR. things I always think when I'm at this end of the High Line it gets quite narrow because we're quite near the track but there's also quite a lot of this disused land that one of the things when you sort of talk to people in at this end of the High Line people do say things like well fine you're gonna have a nice curated 
park over there, but what about all this? Can't you scoop that in as well? Because it's not well used, a lot of antisocial behaviour, can't you kind of scoop that in? Which would be nice, I think. We'd like to do it. I mean, at the moment, we're dealing with Network Rails land, because one step at a time, and this is Camden's, but, you know. So this is going to be part of it here, then? This is... That wall there, that concrete bit there, that's the edge of the High Line. And you can see the tracks just beyond, so there's a thin strip between that wall and the tracks. But this kind of overgrown sort of wasteland potentially could be pulled in and, and give something a bit more to this Maiden Lane estate. But this doesn't belong to the railways. It doesn't belong to the railways, it belongs to the estate. So maybe, Simon, you can just start and tell us the birth of this idea, because you've begun to show us one part of where the, this high line will be. And I must say, it'd be hard to spot the opportunity unless you... You looked very closely because, as you say, some parts are very narrow. You, you need to develop some barriers and shields even at the point we're at. How did you spot the opportunity or, how, or who did spot the well, opportunity? It actually, well, it wasn't any of us. It was a, an academic at UCL called Oliver O'Brien who, I think inspired by New York and Paris, did a piece of work on the sort of 10 sites in London that you could do something like this. Uh, and, of course, it actually makes sense when you look at it from above. And so then he wrote about that and a local rag called the Kentish Towner picked it up and then various sort of people around us said, oh, you should do that. And we thought, that's nuts. And here we are. And tell me the, the process from him spotting this on a map to now and the process you still have to go through. What, what's been the journey of time so far and how long do you think before people will be potentially walking along, along the highway? I think we took it on about five years ago and we've raised and spent a million quid on it to get it through planning and we've hired brilliant people like Tatiana to help us do that. And I think, with a fair wind, we could be open early 25, first section. And how much money do you need to raise to build this? Then? So we need to raise another 14 million to build that first section. And the reason we're doing that sec- at the Camden Town End first is partly because, as you'll see, there's a, an entrance at Camley Street which still needs to be worked out in conjunction with the development that the local authority are doing. But also, that's the widest part, so it'll be the kind of you know, wow, glam factor at that end, which I think will help us raise the money to build the next two sections. Tatiana, it's fascinating seeing you working on this project because you're part of the team that made that original High Line, which has been a a piece of placemaking, a park-making that's captured people's attention all around the world. What lessons from that are helping you shape the park that we're going to be seeing built here in London? Well, I'm working with that original firm that did the High Line in New York, James Corner Field Operations. And I used to work for James Corner, and I came to London and set up my own practice. And when we saw the competition, I thought, well, this would be a really good partnership to be the local arm, and they have the kind of lead role. And there's obviously the experience of doing a High Line is very, very unique. It's incredibly complex to understand the existing constraints you know it looks like there's already plants there there's already greenery you could just sort of you know somehow put in a a light touch sort of path or something but actually that all the land is contaminated so that has to be dealt with there's also lots of restrictions about how you get things on and off the high line in terms of plants and maintenance equipment and installation and then what's unique to this which wasn't the case on the new york high line is the live railway so that's a unique challenge here and will make it very, very different from the New York High Line. It'll have a completely different feel to it, partly as a result of that. So you can see these big gantries and all of the electrical lines that are overhead and there's a huge amount of stuff that's suspended above us and all of that is live wires. So you're not allowed to use anything metal 
on the whole High Line, apart from the, the stairs and things which are far enough away. So you have to be five metres from the overhead lines. So all of the screens and the planking and benches, everything up there has to be made out of wood or, or recycled plastics or other materials. Obviously you can have kind of small fixings and things, but anything continuous in case a line came down and kind of electrified the whole project. And now we fly to my hometown, São Paulo, to meet Bel Coelho. She's the chef owner of Cuia. We hear a recipe from her. It's called Baião de Dois, a traditional dish from the northeast of Brazil. Hi, everybody. I'm Bel Coelho. I'm a chef from Brazil, and I have a restaurant called Cuia, located in the heart of São Paulo, at the iconic Copan Building one of the most famous projects from our celebrated Brazilian architect, Oscar Niemeyer. My cooking style is creative Brazilian cuisine. I have an important research on Brazil's food culture and native ingredients. And I am also a food activist fighting for healthier and more sustainable food systems. Today, I chose a very traditional recipe from northeast of Brazil called Baião de Dois, and I simply love it. This recipe yields from two to four portions. First, you cook one cup of white needle rice on boiling water up until it's cooked but still firm. Strain it and put it aside. You'll do the same process with half a cup of black-eyed peas. Put it aside as well. Then, you take a large saute pan and with one tablespoon of clarified butter, you braise one large chopped onion and two chopped garlic loaves. Next, you add one or two bay leaves and some chopped ladyfinger pepper till everything is beautifully golden brown. After that, you add half a cup of diced jerk beef, half a cup of diced yam, half a cup of diced squash, and half a cup of diced tomatoes. Preferably, the tomatoes should be without the seeds and the skin. The dices should be close to half an inch size. You braise all of this for more five to eight minutes until it's very nice and golden color. Then, you can pour half a cup of chicken or vegetable stock until yam and squash are tender. Next, you can add the rice and the black-eyed peas that were previously cooked and saute everything together. Finally, you can season it with salt and chopped coriander to taste. You can also finish with one tablespoon of butter for extra taste and smoothness. And that's it. It was a great pleasure to share some of my food culture with you people. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy it. You are listening to The Curator, our highlights show here on Monaco 24. And now, Chris Chermak looks at the meteorological powers of a particular Pennsylvania groundhog and the annual celebrations that take place in the town of Punxsutawney to mark his famous forecast. The hosts on stage make no bones about the silliness of all of this. As one of them freely admits, the goal for the city of Punxsutawney 
is to milk this one moment for really about as long as you possibly can. So they turn what should be a five-minute moment, where a groundhog is woken up and his prediction of six more weeks of winter goes around the world, into literally a five-day event. I'm not kidding, there's banquets and lunches, the groundhog ball, the talent shows, and bands and food at the hospitality village in town. And even on the day itself, thousands of people trek up to Gobbler's Knob for what's become a four-hour festival. And we're not talking during the day either. Since Phil the Groundhog gets woken up at dawn, around 7.20 a.m. for his proclamation, we're talking a celebration that starts at 3 a.m. in the morning, in the freezing dead of winter, in the middle of rural Pennsylvania. There's a talent show. Now, to present the check for $500 to this year's winner, please welcome Miss Pennsylvania, Alyssa Bainbridge. They toss a balloon football around. Since we're like a week or so out from the Super Bowl, we thought we would have an official Groundhog Day Super Bowl prediction. There's fireworks. There's dancing. There's chanting. There's even a bit of fabulously exaggerated coaxing of Phil out of his burrow. Let's do that one more time! And then there's the wait as they try to actually get Phil out of his burrow. Here comes the little varmint. <laughs> Phil in there? Come on, Phil. Bring it, buddy. Time to get up, dude. And then when Phil finally does come out, considering his prediction, it's not even really a happy moment. I see that everyone knows their part, and I am merely the sage. But above all else, I see a shadow on my stage. And so, no matter how you measure, it's six more weeks of winter weather. Thanks to my neighborly narrators in the crowd there. After that, the celebration kind of turns into a wake, and everyone shuffles out of Gobbler's Knob pretty quickly, no doubt to get a warm cup of hot chocolate or coffee and reattach their frozen toes. I mean, seriously, who does this? I live just a mile down the hill. So, and we have friends in from Nevada, so they're down front of the VIP. Their dream. <laughs> yeah. They've all been all over the world. And they are acting like they have never been out of their backyards. They are so excited. <laughs> and it's so contagious. Some you know, you have your Bible and you have your flag and then you have your film. <laughs> my name is Tom Uberti and my uh, nickname in the uh, inner circle is the Big Windmaker. And I've been doing this uh, probably since around 2005, 2006. It's, uh, it's always a good time. And it's always a pleasure to meet so many people from not only around the country, but around the world. You know, our little, uh, our little uh, corner of the world here, about 6,000 people, we, uh, we gain worldwide recognition on this particular day. And we, uh, we have a very good time with it. 
What is it about this event? Just tell me from your perspective. It's the people, Chris. You take a small town like this, and you have people from all over the world that come to hear Phil's prognostication. That's uh, that's second to none, in my opinion. So my perspective is uh, that of of awe. I, I I'm amazed every year as we host this great tradition. The people that continue to come from around the country, from around the world, like yourself, international, and we're just so appreciative. It's so great. It's a great day, and everyone is always so happy. I always I always notice that. Even though it's five degrees outside, it's all smiles all day. This last person is Dan Moonshine McGinley. He's the vice president of the Punxsutawney Groundhog Club that runs this whole shindig. We had, I had four college kids walk onto the grounds at 2.50 a.m. So yeah, they come that early, and they come at 3, and they keep trickling in and trickling in at 4 and at 5, and all of a sudden you look up, the sun, here comes the sun, and there's thousands of people. It's amazing. So there is your explanation from the people who love it most. But there is, of course, one other aspect to this. Punxsutawney Phil is really the world's most famous weatherman, which is why his town calls itself the weather capital of the world. And this year, Phil was inducted into the town's Hall of Fame for meteorologists, which sits at the Weather Discovery Center, a little museum mostly for children, right here in Punxsutawney. Phil was our 19th and final inductee yesterday. This is Lisa Waksmanski, executive director of the Weather Discovery Center. Punxsutawney Phil is a pillar of this community. He's a symbol of folklore, of history, of tradition. What does he mean to meteorologists? Well, he's been forecasting the weather since 1887. I mean, that's a very long time, and he does it with 100% accuracy. I can't think of any other meteorologist that can say that same claim with certainty. Now that's a claim everyone here will tell you, and while I hate to spoil the fun with statistics, I should say the Federal Weather Agency NOAA once calculated that Phil is actually right and underwhelming 40% of the time, which, if we're honest, is probably about on par with most meteorologists. What blizzard? It's a couple of flakes! Don't you listen to the weather? We got a major storm here. Time next to weather. All of this moisture coming up out of the Gulf is going to push out to the east and then out to the... How? You got that moisture on your head. I had to fit Bill Murray and the Groundhog Day movie into this somewhere, but more seriously, Groundhog Day is actually a pilgrimage of sorts for budding meteorologists. I mean, we get a lot of people, you know, that come in and, and they say, you know, we had to come to Groundhog Day and we just love the weather and, you know, my son wants to be a meteorologist. This is Amanda Barrent, Education Director of the Weather Discovery Center. We get people from all over that are just excited about weather and meteorology and Phil and, you know, where better to have a weather museum than the weather capital of the world. So all I can say is carry on, Punxsutawney. I'm not sure you'll get me to trek up that hill at dawn again, but keep doing your thing and inspiring the next generation of weathermen and women from around the world. As a groundhog is my witness, you certainly seem to have a fabulous time celebrating it. But standing here among the people of Punxsutawney, and basking in the warmth of their hearths and hearts. I couldn't imagine a better fate than a long and lustrous winter. From Punxsutawney, it's Phil Connors. So long. And for Monocle, from Punxsutawney, it's Chris Chermack. So long.
And now a highlight from my show The Stack about print media. Tom Webb speaks with Alan Murray. He's the CEO of Fortune Media, responsible for Fortune magazine. Fortune has been a print magazine since 1930. We intend to be a print magazine for a long, long time, but it's a much smaller business, part of our business, than it used to be, probably less than 20% of our total revenues. So where is the main focus now? Well, a big part, of course, is digital. We've had a huge expansion of digital over the last couple of years. We've more than tripled our audience. We've more than tripled our digital revenues. We reach 30 million people a month. Uh, actually, more than that, if you count all the licensing agreements and various distribution channels we have for our digital content. So that's just become a much bigger part of our total readership. And then we have a very large executive convening business. We do 20 live events a year. We do as many as 100 virtual events in the course of the year. We have a new training program for next generation CEOs. So we have many other things going on these days besides the print magazine. But we all love the print magazine as kind of the ultimate curation of our content. So 30 million a month online. Yeah, three zero three. Yeah, yeah, well, that is an impressive figure. In terms of print circulation, where are you? Oh, print circulation is significantly smaller. It's probably around six hundred thousand. Yeah. Who are your audience, and what do they come to you for? I think people come to us for information about business, both how to succeed in business, how to run successful businesses, how the world of business is changing and evolving. And some of our readers also come to us for ideas on investing, where to put their money, how to make more money. So we're here in Davos. The Inflation Reduction Act has been a big talking point. How does it impact your business? Well, it's huge. You know, one of the things I've been coming to Davos on and off for uh, almost 25 years, and the environment has always been part of the conversation here. But what's different this year, really, I think for the first time, is that the business community has taken this on with a really increased degree of seriousness. Every company, every big company now has a net zero commitment for 2050. That has been a huge change over the course of the last three years. And part of what they're doing here is figure out how they actually meet those commitments and how they work together in order to deal with the energy transition and try and get to that net zero target. So it's a big change in the way business thinks, talks, and the way business operates. Another big talking point here in Davos is there's a worrying number of CEOs saying that their companies may not be viable in 10 years if they stick to the current path. Can you explain what is causing this and a potential way out? Yeah, sure. It's really interesting. I mean, most CEOs think we're going to have a recession over the course of the next year, yet that has not been the focus of concern over the course of the last week. What they're really focused on is the bigger transformations that are happening over the next decade. I mean, you have these new technologies, particularly AI, but also data management technologies that really have the capacity and the potential to completely transform almost every business in almost every industry. And so companies are thinking about how do I thrive during that transformation? How do I get on top of that and make sure I'm not one of the companies left behind? Similarly, the energy transition we were talking about, you know, is really going to cause some profound changes in the way business operates as you move away from fossil fuels, you get into more sustainable business models. And so what I find the business leaders here talking about is how do I how do I do that? How do I 
make these massive transformations that I have to make in order to be successful 10 years down the road. That's really what's captivating people's attention. And other big business transformations, a battle for talent, not just journalists, but staff in general. Is this a long-term trend we're going to see now? How do you retain talent? I think the battle for talent is a long-term trend, and, and, and here's why. The way that businesses create value has changed profoundly over the course of the last few decades. And I'll give you a statistic that helps make that point. If you go back to the 1970s and look at the balance sheets of the Fortune 500 companies, what you'll find is that more than 80% of the value created by those companies on their balance sheets is in stuff, physical stuff. It's do you have plants? Do you have equipment? Do you have oil in the ground? Do you have inventory on the shelves? And if you had the stuff, you could create value. If you look at the balance sheets of the Fortune 500 companies today, what you'll find is more than 85% of the value is what they call intangibles. It's intellectual property. It's the brand connection with the consumer. Those are all things that are much more embedded in human talent, human beings. And so business has become much more about trying to both attract and engage the best talent in order to create value. So I don't think the talent wars, it may have been intensified by the pandemic, people pulling out of the labor force, all of that. But I don't think the talent wars are going to end. I think the nature of business has changed in a way that makes talent the top driver of value and therefore the top priority for companies. So top priority for companies maybe for this year. We've wrapped at Davos. It's mid-January 2023. What are your business priorities? Our business priorities are to cover these big transformations that I was just talking about. Look, we have a, a clear purpose at Fortune to try and provide the information and counsel and advice to help make business better. I come to Davos in part to hear what's top of mind for them. No question what's top of mind for them are these big transformations. The technology transformation, the sustainability transformation, there's a supply chain transformation that's going on because of, of changing geopolitics. So our focus over the course of the next year will be how to help businesses survive all of those. And finally, on the show, we have the On This Day historical series, which now goes back 40 years to the bizarre origins of a mystery still unsolved. Warning, features Vanilla Ice. Third is number two, Bastovi, written by Lester Pickett. And sensationally, Shergar, the odds-on favourite, the shortest prize favourite since the Jinsky won a few years. Shergar's last race was far from his best, but by September 1981, he was the kind of horse for whom fourth place in the St Ledger counted as a disappointment. The Irish stallion, owned by the Aga Khan, was by this point an undisputed phenomenon. In the previous 12 months, Shergar had won the Chris Plate, the Sandown Classic, the Chester Vars, the King George VI and Queen Elizabeth Stakes, the Irish Derby and the Derby, the latter in a canter. There's only one horse in it. You need a telescope to see the rest. They have a problem to go. And Shergar is galloping them into the ground. 15 lengths at least. After the St. Ledger calamity, everything's relative, Shergar was retired to Ballymany in County Kildare to a profitable and, one assumes, agreeable life at stud and his place in turf legend, both doubtless deserved. 
But on this day 40 years ago, Shergar became the most famous racehorse on earth all over again. The hunt for the kidnapped derby winner Shergar has moved across the Irish border to Northern Ireland. A ransom of £40,000 has been asked for, not the two million first reported. On the foggy night of February 8th, 1983, a gang of nine armed men pitched up at Ballymany and instructed the head groom, Jim Fitzgerald, to load Shergar into a horse box. Fitzgerald was driven around in circles in a separate vehicle for a terrifying few hours before being released. Of Shergar, nothing has since been seen. The days immediately following the taking of Shergar were both frantic and farcical. First, the kidnappers summoned a delegation of racing journalists to Belfast. All they had to go on was the anonymous caller's promise that he would contact them in a Belfast hotel. But within minutes of checking in, the drama took on a new turn. Thompson received a phone call in the hotel lobby. Um, how, how far is that from Dublin? Yeah, uh, from uh, Belfast. 30 miles. Right. And who am I talking to, by the way? Already and indeed since, the answer to that question was widely assumed. And some years later, Sean O'Callaghan, a former IRA member, stated that it was indeed the IRA who had taken the horse. This avenue of negotiation duly went nowhere, nor did another in which Shergar's vet, Stan Cosgrove, was instructed to report to a Dublin hotel and ask for messages assigned to the codename Johnny Logan. I've been waiting such a long time, looking out for you. Johnny Logan there, with his 1980 Eurovision Song Contest winner, What's Another Year? He'd win again in 1987 and write the runner-up entry in 1984 and the winner in 1992, making him verily the Shergar of pop. And this was not to be the last unlikely crossover between Shergar's story and subpar modern song. Shergar's trail ran cold, despite the best efforts of the platoons of psychics, diviners, dowsers, clairvoyants and similar hucksters who traditionally descend upon such mysteries, and the thrashing in the dark of the unabashedly bamboozled Irish police. Trilby-wearing Chief Superintendent James Murphy became a much-enjoyed, semi-deliberate comic turn. Have you got any leads at all now? Any, are you any further ahead than you were yesterday? I regret to say that I'm not. In the years since Shergar vanished, it has become widely accepted that the horse was killed fairly shortly after being taken from Ballymoney, either because he had been injured during the kidnap and or because the plan to hold him for ransom had just gone generally askew. Perversely, Shergar's name is better remembered than those of most human victims of Ireland's troubles, testament to both the strangeness of the story and perhaps our difficulty with properly confronting the cruelty of people to each other. Shergar's immortality is somewhat twin-track. He is recalled as both a tremendous racehorse and deployed as the punchline in any number of morbid jokes. The British newspaper The Sunday Sport, whose journalism is rarely cited in encyclopedias, claimed Shergar had been spotted being ridden by the vanished peer Lord Lucan. 
The sport website of Ireland's national broadcaster, RTE, for a while decorated its 404 page not found error message with a picture of Shergar. Let's kick it! Possibly most curiously of all, when the BBC returned to Shergar's story as recently as 2021, they lit upon as narrator the bad-in-the-90s rapper Vanilla Ice, despite this making no more or less sense than asking MC Hammer to present a documentary about the IRA's murder of the Earl Mountbatten, and perhaps we should stop here lest we give anyone ideas. Although possibly Ice empathised with Shergar's trajectory of sudden astonishing success, followed by disappearance without trace. Sadly, Ice did not relay Shergar's tale in rap, despite stop, collaborate and listen, Ice is looking for a horse which is missing, being right there. IRA took a hold of his bridle, led him away with intentions homicidal. Will we ever find him? I don't know. Maybe start by digging under this hedgerow. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Well, that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week. Thank you for listening.